Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis chapter 28. I'll begin reading in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Matt. It's always my goal to include as many place names in the scripture reading as possible when I know that Matt is doing the, the scripture reading. You passed, I think. I'm not an expert in the pronunciation. Good morning. We're going to talk about this text from Genesis chapter 28. The text uh, recounts a dream that includes a promise that is repeated throughout Genesis and throughout Scripture. Uh, in the midst of Jacob's dream, this promise is uttered. It is one iteration in a long line of repetitions of this promise. So let's let's look at a few. It maybe sounds familiar to your ears. If you didn't catch it, we'll look at it here. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the Lord said to Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 26, verse 4, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, through your offspring all the nations on earth will be blessed. Genesis 28, 14, we read it a moment ago. The Lord said to Jacob, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. And this promise reverberates throughout our scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, in fact. The Apostle Paul picks up on these words in Galatians in his letter to the church there and gives them new, a new title. He calls this promise to Abram the gospel in advance. The gospel in advance. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. In other words, the, the seeds of God's redemptive purposes, which are ultimately accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection, are present in Genesis 12, and they echo through the scriptures. But there's a, a harsh reality that foregrounds this promise to make Abram and his offspring a blessing 
to all the peoples of the earth. There's a harsh reality that foregrounds this promise every time that it's repeated. In fact, it's so harsh that it seems to negate the promise before it's even made. Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. This, of course, happens before the promise is uttered in Genesis chapter 12. What makes the promise of Genesis 12, 3 and all of the successive iterations of that promise remarkable, along with all of its repetitions, is that Genesis 11:30 came first. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann sees this as a pattern repeated throughout Scripture. The Bible bears witness to the reality of Genesis 11:30, then goes on to narrate how God is faithful in bringing about Genesis 12:3. He puts it this way, the marvel of biblical faith is that barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving action. What's he saying here? He's saying that everywhere you look in the Bible, there is some version of God attending to barrenness that he might bring forth life. Think of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Think of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel. Think of Jesus' healing miracles. Think of Jesus' feeding miracles. It's not just how God worked in Abram and Sarai's circumstance. It is how God works. So perhaps you've come this morning with a dream that you have maybe lost, considered dead, or perhaps a relationship that you have all but written off, perhaps a family member who is estranged. Whatever barrenness you're facing today, I want to encourage you that it is the arena of God's life-giving action. I want to hasten to add here that um, I am uh, firsthand aware of the realities and difficulties of things like infertility and the kinds of literal barrenness that are being discussed here in this chapter. Uh, And I want to say, still, in faith and hope, with every ounce of sensitivity that I hope you can hear from me this morning, that barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving activity. So in addition to the Genesis 1130 reality of barrenness, there is yet another harsh reality that foregrounds the repetition of this repeated promise to bless the nations through Abram's offspring. God's promise is always accompanied by not only barrenness, but displacement of one sort or another. Displacement. We see this in uh, Genesis 12 Again, in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And the blessing follows. Genesis 26, the promise to Isaac. Now there was a famine in the land, and Isaac went to Gerar, to King Abimelech of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Settle in the land that I shall show you. Reside in this land as an alien. And the blessing follows these words. And we see the same pattern for Jacob, although unlike Abraham and Isaac, whom God instructs to leave their place, Jacob's displacement is in some ways self-imposed because of the way he cheated his brother out of his birthright, and now he's on the run. In the passage that precedes today's scripture reading, we read this. Now Esau, Jacob's brother, hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
But the words of her elder son Esau were told to Rebekah. So apparently Esau wasn't successful in saying them to himself. So she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. And the blessing repeated in this morning's scripture reading follows this flight and actually occurs in the midst of this flight from his brother who has murder on his mind. It's easy to see the repeated promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His plan to bless the gospel in advance. It's just as easy to miss that the recipients of the promise are all in difficult circumstances of one sort or another when the promise is made whether it's barrenness or displacement or disorientation or being under the threat of death, being pursued. So why these difficult circumstances? Why the displacement? Couldn't the promise find fulfillment without Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob having to be uprooted? Perhaps so, but maybe there are some things that we could glean here. Because God's promise comes to those who are displaced disoriented, and in some cases as good as dead, each of them will need the promise reinforced, rearticulated, and recast at some point on their journey. Perhaps the promise comes to the displaced, disoriented, and the as good as dead to supply them with hope they couldn't have discerned if they had been secure and prosperous. The other day, Hillary told Jack, our six-year-old, that he wasn't going to be able to do something that he really wanted to do. And Jack, uh, disappointed, frustrated, sighed, thought for a moment, and replied, sometimes it's hard to remember that I'm not the main character. I know. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes, right? And this is hard for me to remember, too. And perhaps it's hard for you to remember. One of the joys of forgetting this lesson, as often as I do, is the frequency and variety with which I am reminded of it. Sometimes by my own son, and almost always when I'm not expecting to be reminded of it. Learning this lesson in particular, that Jacob isn't the main character, could be what's going on in the midst of this displacement and disorientation. Walter Brigham again says, the promise for the well-being of others protects the narrative from self-interest. It expresses the counter theme, urging the promise receiver, Jacob, out beyond his narrow interests. Receiving this promise as the gospel in advance has the same potential for us, I want to submit to us this morning. Or perhaps Jacob's displacement reinfuses the promise with a sense of surprise. I mean, consider it. Jacob, growing up, must have heard this promise repeated over and over again from his grandfather and from his father. There comes a time, inevitably, that Jacob must hear this promise and experience it firsthand for himself so that he can internalize it. And it's probably not going to stick at home. He's got to go somewhere else to really experience it and to internalize it. Perhaps what's going on here is some kind of displacement that allows him to hear it again as if for the first time. Jacob can hear this promise clearly precisely because he's in some unnamed place 
and hearing it by way of a bizarre dream. So perhaps this morning you're going through a particularly, particularly trying time, or you feel like you're in the, the wilderness between home and some unknown destination, perhaps. Wherever it is that you've set off toward, and in the midst of these circumstances, God's love and care are evident to you in a way that they couldn't have been had things been status quo. Although the content of Jacob's dream is certainly startling, the real surprise for Jacob comes upon waking from this dream. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 16, we read, Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Here he is in some dangerous, unnamed place, sleeping outside with a rock for a pillow, a child of promise, but also a deceitful cheat, fleeing for his life. No wonder he's surprised that God finds him there. 18th century English poet John Newton distills the message of this story in his poem, Jacob's Ladder. In the poem, he places himself and us, the readers of Jacob's story, at the scene of this encounter between God and Jacob. He says, we are at the ladder's foot every hour in every place. They who know the Savior's name are for all events prepared. Every spot is holy ground. God is there, and he's their home. I think the poem has the potential to sharpen our understanding not only of Jacob's story, but our, also our own lives. The poem alerts us to an array of rich possibilities for contemplation. Every spot is holy ground. And if that sounds too spiritual, uh, I was contemplating this poem as I visited the DMV this week, perhaps even there. Try that one on for size. This dream, believe it or not, as obscure as it seems, makes another appearance in the New Testament. Did you know that? In the Gospel of John. And this is odd, not only because the dream is somewhat obscure, but also because unlike the other Gospel writers, John uses direct quotations from the Old Testament rather sparingly. Now, John's Gospel is full of Old Testament allusions, but he rarely does it in direct quotation. So, we should perhaps take special note when John does indeed use a direct quote from the Old Testament. Wouldn't you know it, one of these direct quotes is the content of a fugitive's dream. Odd, right? And John chapter 1, pick it up in, in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee he found Philip and said to him, follow me. After Jesus calls Philip, Philip invites Nathaniel to join him with what's perhaps the most winsome call to discipleship in all of scripture, come and see. This invitation is dripping with irony because as it turns out, Jesus has already seen Nathaniel under the tree before they meet. I saw you under a fig tree, Jesus says. And if you think that's something, Wait until you see heaven opened and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And here we have that direct reference to Jacob's dream. What an odd thing for Jesus to say to Nathaniel. You know, of course, there are a lot of I am sayings in John's gospel. Uh, I am the door. I am the vine. I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life, and so on. 
And this declaration in John 1 isn't usually considered among these famous I am statements. But Jesus essentially says to Nathaniel, I am the ladder. That's right. Remember Jacob's wild dream about a ladder to the heavens when he was running for his life from his murderous older brother? Nathaniel, do you remember that? Well, that ladder was me. There's an often scrutinized tendency among the church fathers of the early centuries who read passages of scripture from the Old Testament and found Jesus on every page. They searched every nook and cranny of the Old Testament, read every line, every story, searched every image to find Jesus. Now, looking for Jesus in the Old Testament is a healthy impulse for Christians who want to read Scripture discerningly, but the fathers are on another level. If you've ever read any of the early church fathers, this um, can get a bit wild. They sift through every story and every image to find Christ. This is one reason I think they are so revealing and so fascinating to read. They leave no stone unturned, literally, in fact. Commenting on today's text, the 4th century theologian St. Jerome says, when Jacob was in flight from his brother in Mesopotamia, he came to lose, and there to rest, Scripture says, he placed a stone under his head. The stone, go figure, was Christ. Jerome goes on to explain what he means, and it yields, at least in my opinion, a a beautiful interpretation of an otherwise off-handed detail in Genesis chapter 28. But still, the stone pillow in this story is so seemingly inconsequential as to make this reading, I mean, comical. But not to Jerome. To him, it's Christ. And you could perhaps... See how readings of the Old Testament like this one could lead you a bit off the beaten path. However, the church fathers seem to be on solid footing discovering Christ in Genesis chapter 28 because in John 1, as we've just seen, Jesus himself sees him in this passage. In John's telling, Jesus pulls back the cosmic curtain to reveal that indeed he was present in the dream of a renegade younger brother. I mean, talk about the gospel in advance. Jesus appears in the dream of an estranged family member. Not to be outdone by Jerome, St. Chromatius, bishop of Aquileia in the 4th century, riffs on Jesus' self-identification as the ladder, saying, The ladder fixed on the ground and reaching heaven is the cross of Christ, through which access to heaven is granted to us. All of that to say that if Jesus does indeed lurk in the pages of the Old Testament, why does Jesus choose to refer to this dream imagery in particular at the moment of Nathanael's calling? Perhaps Jesus wants the episode of Jacob's encounter with God to be fresh in Nathanael's mind. Perhaps Jesus is inviting Nathanael to reconsider that original promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the lens of Jesus' bodily presence right in front of him. And perhaps he wants Nathanael to recall what Jacob saw in the dream so that he can also recall what Jacob heard, that promise made to him, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you. Perhaps he wanted Nathanael to hear those words echoing in his mind. 
But there's one other thing that makes Jacob's somewhat obscure dream, I think, the ideal image to present to Nathaniel in John 1. When Philip first invites Nathaniel to come and see, Nathaniel famously responds to Philip by saying, Yeah, right. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, God cannot be at work in Nazareth, of all places. So when Jesus refers to Jacob's dream, he's also pointing back to Jacob's revelation upon waking that the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it, even in Nazareth, the place from which you can imagine no good thing coming. He's been here all along, and you did not know. Malcolm Geit, in a poem entitled Nathaniel's Epiphany, concludes with the profound line, Jacob's dream becomes Nathaniel's waking. He ties these two passages together in just this way. I want to sort of draw us to a close here as we prepare to approach the table. After looking at this passage, somewhat obscure dream, um, to try and tie this to the table may be a bit of a challenge, but I just want to present a few kind of, I don't know, statements that distill what we've looked at thus far this morning. And maybe you've, uh, I don't mean to talk down to you, you may have already discerned all of these things as faithful listeners and readers of the text, but here goes. Are you ready? Let's try and sum this up. God is present and active in circumstances that seem impossible. Remember, barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving activity. God is present and active among those who are far from the safety and comfort of home. Think of Isaac. God is present and active among those who are displaced or fleeing for their lives. Think here of Jacob. God is present and active when we are inactive. Jacob is, after all, dreaming when God reiterates this promise to him. He's asleep, and yet God is active. God is present and active before we can even recognize his presence and activity. We're hearing, again, the gospel in advance, according to the Apostle Paul. God is present and active in places where we might not be prepared to recognize his presence and activity. Consider Jacob in his flight from Esau, hearing the words of this promise again. God is even present and active in the places that we have trained ourselves not to look, and a light from heaven shone. God is even present and active in places that we have trained ourselves not to look for his presence and activity, perhaps even here in Springfield, right, on Sherman Avenue, uh, in our neighborhood, uh, in the places that we see and pass by every day in our Nazareth. Surely no good thing can come out of Springfield, Missouri, right? Thank you. All of those over-familiar places. 
And finally, God has seen us before we have even thought to look for him. Think of Nathaniel here. I saw you under the fig tree. Just as it's hard to remember that we are not the main character, uh, we will inevitably forget each of these lessons that we might glean from this text. We're going to forget these truths, but the desire to remember is what draws us to the table each week. We want to do this in remembrance of him. And so we draw near today to receive from the one who is present and active through his broken body and his shed blood. The prayer response that we prayed this morning, I have a big X through this, but I feel like I'm just going to say it anyway. Uh, the prayer response that we prayed this morning, it's just kind of a, a, a random exercise of prayer. I decided to rewrite it in light of what we uh, have looked at today. So here's that prayer, and you'll just have to listen to it because I lost confidence and didn't put it on a slide, so listen well. Do you remember that prayer? Mark, maybe you can put up the prayer response so there's at least a frame of reference. Give you a second to do that. I know I'm calling an audible. Thanks, man. All right, here goes. And let this be our invitation to the table today. Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love to become a ladder from heaven to earth, that all the nations of the earth might be blessed through Israel. So clothe us in your spirit that we, dreaming anew of that ladder, may awaken with a renewed sense of your presence and activity in our midst. Amen.